2 Samuel and chapter number 4. I've sure enjoyed studying here in 2 Samuel. A lot of just practical uh, matters to consider, and tonight will be no different. It's a different kind of a chapter. It's uh, not one maybe you'd preach on a Christmas morning or a Easter morning, something like that, you know. But it's just as relevant to our lives, right? And can be a great help to us. And so um, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity. Let's look at it now. So we're going to read chapter 4, and then we're going to go right into chapter 5, and we'll go through verse number 5. So it says, And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble. And we'll explain who this is talking about and the circumstances as we get into it. And all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of the bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab. And then he gives a little bit more information about them in verse 2 and 3, verse number 4. And Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. And he, he was five years old when Jonathan, when tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up. And fled, and it came to pass as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, that's a great introduction right there, isn't it? We know the name Mephibosheth. And so he's five then, so at this time he'd be about 12, 12 and a half, somewhere right in there, 12 years old and, and crippled because of a fall in that sense. Okay, verse five. And the sons of Rimen, the Beathite, Rechab, and Benaiah, went, and Abana rather, went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him under the fifth rib. So there's that fifth rib treatment again, right? Keep coming across that. And Rechab and Abana, his brother, escaped for they came into the house. And a little bit more of an explanation in verse 7, just kind of commentary on verse 6, basically. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him. And then additional information is given here. Pretty gruesome. gruesome and beheaded him and took his head and got them away through the plain all night. So about 50 miles they're going to run with this. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. Saul, talking about Saul, sought thy life, David. And notice what they said right here. <clears throat> and the Lord hath avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimen, the Berethite, and said unto them, as the Lord liveth, pay close attention right here if you would please, as the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me saying, behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. See the correlation? How much more when wicked men 
have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hang them up over a pool in Hebron. Okay, so you see why we don't preach this at Christmas. <laughs> but it's here in the Bible, right? But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it, did, the, did what they could here to try to honor Ishbosheth by burying it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. All right, verse 1, chapter 5. This is a monumental few verses right here. <clears throat> then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou was he that led us out and brought us in, Israel. And the Lord said to thee, thou shalt feed my people, Israel. Thou shalt feed my people. That literally is, you're going to be their shepherd. Thou shalt feed my people, Israel, God says to David, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. And so uh, tonight, we're going to, in our series, When a Nation Needs Revival, here's the title of the message, Acting in the Best Interest of God's People. Acting in the Best Interest of God's People. So may God bless the reading of his word as you're seated. Let's, let's consider... Don't count out this chapter just because it's gory. By the way, we do need to know that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Okay, that's one lesson you certainly could learn from this, but I hope to, point out, try, to try to point out a few others. But to do that, we need to understand what's going on. So last, uh, last Sunday night, we were in chapter 3, and we are considering Abner. And uh, what happened, for those that may be your guests here, we entitled the message, Those Who Act in Bitterness Act on Their Own. Bitterness will drive you to do a lot of things that you never dreamed that you would do. Bitterness will. I think a lot of people are out of God's will because of bitterness. Bitterness uh, can really have an impact. And so we saw the aggressiveness of Joab and the passivity of David. We were looking at that contrast that uh, what was taking place. All right, let me, let me back up here a little bit. God, God said, God said to David, you're going to be king over all Israel. That was clearly God's will. After the death of Saul, who was the first king of Israel, um, you would have hoped that all of Israel would have come to David and said, David, we want you to be our king. That was, that's God's will. But that wasn't how it played out. Abner, the general of Saul, the war general, the military leader under Saul, um, he set up Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth. That's who we read about in the text. So he set up Ishbosheth to be Ishbosheth to be the king and um, shifted his authority under him and began to work and, 
And so then there's a conflict between Abner, on one hand, the general of Israel, and Joab, the general under David in the south of Judah. They clash, and we've gone over that week by week, but I'm trying to drink, draw in everybody that maybe wasn't here for all that. So there's this big battle that takes place. 24 men die in addition to that. Um, additional people die from Israel. It was so unnecessary. It was so unnecessary because even Adner himself knew that David was supposed to be king. And yet he acted on his own. In fact, a lot of what we've seen here in chapters uh, one with the Amalekite who said, you know, I slayed, I slew rather uh, Saul. He thought he was going to get a reward. David reminded uh, this man of that. And uh, he was acting on his own. You come to chapter two, Abner's acting on his own. There's a blow up between Abner and Ishbosheth, which by the way, all that is background also to the fact that um, Abner killed Azahel, the brother of Joab. So that's where this revenge idea comes in. And so now um, Abner has a blow up with Ishbosheth, and uh, then he shifts his loyalty to David. Okay, so he goes to David and says, listen, I think that I can meet with individuals. And first he sent servants and then he met with the elders and then he met with David. He said, I'm going to shift the loyalty of all Israel. Israel was to the north. David and the people of Judah were to the south. He says, I'm going to go to work and we're going to shift the loyalty of all Israel to you, David. They would be under your authority. You know, it would have been really good if he'd done that at the very beginning. He had the opportunity and yet he wasted it. He squandered it because he thought he'd try he thought he'd try his plan first before doing God's plan. You know, and when you try your plan, uh, it's going to be futile. For, so look, save yourself a lot of trouble. Save yourself a lot of trouble just by getting with God's plan rather than giving your, tri your plan a little trial run. Okay. Your little plan, my little plan is not going to work. So there was Abner working on his own. So then what happens? All right. Then what happens is, is after this meeting with David and Abner, as Abner has left, Joab comes back on the scene. Now you got to keep in mind that Joab is very upset with, with Abner to say the least because he's killed his brother, uh, he's killed his brother Azahel. And so he finds out that David has had this meeting with Abner. And so, Ab I'm sorry, Joab thinks, what in the world are you doing? And that's what we came to last week as he's upset with his king. He's upset with David. And he said, you should have done something about this. And he really just reams David out. I mean, he really just gives David a piece of his mind. And, and so then what happens is that Joab leaves and he sends some of his servants to get, to get to this man Abner to come back. And Abner's thinking that David wanted something else. That, no doubt that's what he was thinking. He had uh, the promise of David. He had every reason to think that everything was good. So he comes back into the city. He meets up with Joab. Joab pulls him aside in the city gate. He would have these little, little inlets, little areas there where they would have had a private conversation. And Joab, unbeknownst to, to, um, to Abner, drew the sword and, and, and killed him under the fifth rib. It means under the ribs there in the abdomen, just like just like Abner had killed his brother Azahel. So now Joab has taken revenge, but here's the problem, of course, he's acting on his own. He acted on his own. Why did he do that? Why did he kill Abner? When everything was going right, when everything was really starting to get, uh, get where it ought to be. By the way, when things get to where they ought to be in God's plan, 
Don't be surprised if Satan works against that. Things are going good. There's going to be something that comes into that. And that's exactly what's happening here. And the whole, the whole kingdom could have just been in disarray. A big old civil war could have ensued. And so anyways, Joab acted on his own, obviously because he wanted to get revenge against Abner, but he acted on his own also because of this. He thought David wasn't going to do anything or he didn't think David was doing right. And sometimes you and I can think, well, why doesn't God get that person? Or why do, why do they get away with all that? And then if you're not careful, you'll be tempted to act on your own. And that's exactly what happened in the life of Joab. So now that, that brings us up to where we are in our study of chapter number four. In chapter number four, then it begins, as you see in verse number one, that, that um, as we look at it, look at it again with me, if you would, please. When Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his, his hands were feeble. It literally means his hands fell. Um, Ishbosheth didn't have the same spiritual resource that David had. When trouble came, he, he thought, man, the whole kingdom is going to be lost at this point. And so, uh, so his hands were feeble. And it says in verse number one that all the Israelites also were troubled. Their idea was this. The idea was this. They thought, surely now, David, having killed our war general, Abner, they, they, had, no, they had no one to lead their battles. Abner was out. So no doubt, Ishbosheth. And the people of Israel thought David's going to lead an attack here from the south and come up and take over. Actually, that's not at all what David was going to do. But that's what they thought. And that's why they were feeble. That's why they were terrified. That's why they were greatly alarmed. And, but there are two individuals here. Rehab, Rehab, probably is how it's pronounced, and Baana. Uh, I like what uh, Dale Davis said about them. He said they are fraternal thugs. These two brothers, these fraternal thugs. And so they, uh, they come and they, they do this, these two fraternal thugs. I'm just going to call them that too. That's pretty good stuff. They see an opportunity. By the way, the text gives us some additional information. Let's keep reading here. So verse two and three tells us a little bit about these individuals. And then verse number four tells us that Jonathan has a son. Now, why does it mention that? Well, obviously because if um, Ishbosheth uh, who would be the leader after him? Well, the only likely candidate would be this young man named uh, Mephibosheth, and he's 12 years old, and he's got a, a, a disability in the sense that he's not able to walk, and so he's not a candidate to lead Israel. So there's, there's whole this big question about who's going to lead Israel. That's really what's at stake here. Who's going to take over Israel? And, and so then uh, Rehab and, and Baana, what they do in verse number five is that it says that they came into the house in the heat of the day. So it would be um, about midday. And so while things were hot, the individuals would kind of take a little bit of a siesta. And so Ishbosheth was laying in, the, in his bedchamber, Rehab and Baana come in under the guise that they're coming in to get some supplies. They're going to come in and get some food maybe for their, for their soldiers. They probably led some bands of individuals that would go out and do some raids. And so they're coming in under the pretense that they are going to get some wheat, as it says. And, but while they're there, they see Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, on his bed. They come into the room and they take a dagger, or they take a sword and they stab him in the abdomen, and in addition to that, they behead him. It's very gruesome. And they take the head, and they carry that 
15 miles from Mahanaim down to where David is in Hebron. And so then they come to David. Once you see what's going on here, now uh, we're going to see as to why they did that. So verse six says they escaped. Verse number seven says that when they came into the house, uh, oh, sorry, that's a further explanation. Verse number eight, rather, they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, watch this, thine enemy. You know, it's interesting to me that David never referred to Saul as his enemy. Abishai did. The other men, when, uh, when they were in the cave and, David, and Saul was in the cave and didn't know that David was there, his men said, God has delivered thine enemy into thy hand. But David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Abishai said the same thing. Just give me one time. I'll stick him once. That's all it's going to take. Just one time and he'll be done. And David said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. So here are these two men. It's a gruesome scene. I realize that. But they're holding the head of Ishbosheth and they say, look, David, God has delivered. No, that's what they said. God, had, look, okay, let me read it just, just as it is in verse number eight. It says this, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which, which sought thy life. And look what they say in verse number eight. The Lord hath avenged my Lord, the king this day of Saul and of his seed. Well, they, they said that God was in that. But friend, listen, God was nowhere near that. God wasn't in that at all. You know, I, I found this to be true. It's easy to say that God's involved in something when he's not at all involved in something. And just because you said God led you to do something doesn't mean that God actually led you to do something. Okay, listen to what uh, I, I've used Dale Davis here along the way. Listen to what he said here. They come with blood on their hands and theology on their lips. They come with blood on their hands and theology on their lips, expecting that the latter would magically bleach the former. They thought saying, God has delivered him into your hands, David. They thought that'd make up kind of wipe out the fact that they murdered a man while he was laying there on his bed and defenseless. They had blood on their hands and theology in their lips. I want you to, I want you to listen to this. Bayanas and rehabs are still existent today. Some are in our churches. Their methodology is unchanged. They use theology to cover sin and folly. For them, theology is not a truth that brings us to worship God, but a technique that enables us to justify ourselves. You say, I'm not sure if I'm following you right there. Well, basically this, it's easy to say that the Lord led you to do something when it's really what you wanted to do. And every one of us ought to be aware of that. Don't credit God with your sinful actions. Okay, now I've got a quite a bit more application later on, but I'd like to just clear off a spot right here and apply this while it's fresh on your mind. Here they are coming in here saying, look, at, look what the Lord has done when God hadn't done that. Don't credit God with your sinful actions. Don't say God led you to divorce your spouse when God hates divorce. I mean, people changing spouses like people change cars. 
Going to get a new model. No, no, no. Wait a minute, friend. Don't say God. Don't, don't put that on God. Are you following what I'm saying? I know this won't be a real popular part of the sermon, but we'll work through it. Don't say God led you to do that when he's against that. Don't, don't, say, uh, don't say that God gave you these same-sex desires when God saves people out of that. And I'm not saying anybody here is saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But watch this. People that are out there in the world of Christianity are saying, well, God gave me that desire. No, 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 friend, wait a minute. You're, you're, putting, you're making God the author of evil to say that God gave you those desires. No, you had those desires on your own and God will help you with them. He'll help you overcome them. Okay, don't, don't say this. Don't say that, don't say God's okay with you drinking. Well, I just feel like God's all right with this. You know, in fact, I, I feel led like it, does, it doesn't really matter if I drink a little bit socially. What, excuse me? God led you? God, God told you it's okay? When God, thank you. God told you it's okay when in Proverbs 20, uh, 24, 23 rather, he says, look not upon the cup. If, well, 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 wait a minute. You say, well, I think God maybe is okay with just a little bit of drinking. Uh, he said, don't even look at the cup. If he said, don't even look at the cup, what makes you think he's okay with you putting in your body what's in the cup? He said, don't even look at it. Yeah, but I feel led. It doesn't matter how you feel, how you feel led. It matters what God said. So don't, don't credit God. I think a lot more of that's going on than what we'd like to allow for that, that some are coming in here and saying, look what God led me to do. Oh, God ain't anywhere near that. Well, God's, God's leading me away from this church. Wait a minute. You're in a soul winning church. You're in a church that's focused on the great commission. You're in a church that's trying to serve God. And yet you're saying just because you got been out of shape about something or another, I'm not saying that's happening in here right now, but sometimes people just kind of slap that God led me to do this on it because it kind of soothes their conscience and they think they're going to get somewhere with that. No, no, wait a minute. Don't, don't try, don't blame God. For your own waywardness. So don't use God to get what you want. Okay, well that went over like a lead balloon, but it's true. Here they are saying, God's okay with this. God's all right with that. No, no, but, they, but I, here's, here's what we need to focus on. Not so much uh, Rahab, Rehab and, and Baana, though there's a lot to learn right there. But, but here are these individuals saying, hey, listen, look what we did for you. You owe us something. I mean, they came in holding the trophy, thinking, okay, it's not gonna work, up, work out with Ishbosheth. Well, obviously not. It's not going to work out up in Israel. We know you're going to be in the next king. We'd like to be in your administration. They thought, friend, they thought that they were going to get somewhere with David. And they got somewhere with David. Just wasn't exactly where they thought they'd go. Okay. They got somewhere with David. So they said to David, look what God has done. Look at what David did in verse number nine. Please follow along with this. David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, uh, the sons of the, this man and, and said unto them, as the Lord liveth. So now David's gonna, David's gonna speak Bible to them. 
David's gonna use theology with them. They tried to use theology with him to justify their, their actions. They tried to use, they tried to use God and, and say basically this, the end justifies the means. Is everybody following me right here? They're saying the end justifies the means. So the end is that you're gonna be king. And yes, we got there by assassination. We got there by murder. We got there by mayhem. We got there by confusion. We got there by taking things into our own hands. But listen, friend, and throughout the word of God and throughout life, you can't say that the end justifies the means. God can, is concerned about not only the end goal, but he's also concerned about the way that you get there. He's concerned about the means as well. And so David then says, as the Lord lives, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. You know what he's saying right there? He's saying, I don't need two, to fir I don't need two fraternal thugs. I don't need any hit men. I don't need any bodyguards. In fact, David had a good number of mighty men that had their own issues. David wasn't trusting his men. David wasn't trusting other people. David wasn't trusting himself if he was thinking right. And David was sure saying to Baana and to recap, I don't need you to help me become the king of Israel. We don't need human hands, strictly human hands. Now God uses people in the midst of his work. Hey, listen to this here tonight. God uses people, but David is saying, listen, you think that you're getting me out of this trouble? I got a God in heaven that's already done that. He delivered me when I was a teenager and I fought a lion and I fought a bear and he got me through that and he got me through a time when I was facing a giant and he was so tall, but God brought him down. Hey, my trust is in the Lord right here. I'm not trusting the wicked hands of men to do the righteous work of God. I don't need worldly means to accomplish a heavenly plan. Do you see what he's saying right here? I don't need worldly means to accomplish a heavenly plan. He's saying, listen, God has brought me through a time where Saul was chasing me, but God delivered me over and over and over again without me taking this in my own hands. In fact, when I took it into my own hands, it messed things up. You listen to this. When I trusted myself or I trusted the judgment of others, and if I'd listened to Abishai or if I'd listened to others, hey, listen, I just know it's not man working out God's plan. It's God using men to work out his plan. So David says, as the Lord lives, uh, who's redeemed. The word redeemed there, there means this. It means deliver. It's used 60 times in the Old Testament. It's used in like a lot of the Psalms, as David reflects back, how that he, he delivered me from the battle that was against me. It's used of Israel, how that God delivered them out of, out of Egypt and how he delivered them over and over again. And David right here says, he's, as the Lord lives, I'm not, I'm not trusting man, but I'm trusting God who redeemed me, delivered my soul. My soul there means my life. He brought me out. He helped me right here out of all adversity. Man, this is good stuff. He delivered me out of all adversity. All distress, the word distress there means a straight distress or trouble. This poor man cried, David would write a little while later, or maybe long about this time. I don't know the time frame on it, but in Psalm 34 and verse number six, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. God is a refuge for us. A present help in a time of trouble. That's the same word. Adversity and distress. David is basically saying this, I'm gonna trust God right here. 
I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to trust human plans or wicked actions. He said, I've already had somebody try this before. There's an Amalekite who said that he killed Saul and thought that he was going to get some kind of reward and he's no longer on this earth. Well, that's a nice way of putting it. How much more, David says in verse number 11, would wicked men have slain a righteous person in his, in his own house? And so he calls on his men and they, and, they, and they kill these individuals, these two men here and slew them and, and, and uh, dealt with them right then and right there. And here's what he did. Listen to it. I, I realize it's pretty gruesome. He cut off their hands and cut off their feet and they're never going to do this again. And hung them up on a pole, making a very clear statement. I have nothing to do with the death of Ishbosheth. Do you see what he's doing right there? He's making it very, very clear because I believe he had to. He had to make it clear. I don't endorse the action of Joab and I don't endorse the action of Rechab and Baana. To be in God's will sometimes you have to make a very clear break and a very clear separation from those that are acting in a wicked way. It may mean you have to cut some friends off that are doing wrong. Unfriend them. Distance yourself. You can be a friend to all kinds of people, but you may not be able to be a friend with them. And David is indicating here, I had nothing to do with this. And so then what happens is that David is anointed the king over all Israel. All Israel came to him. Would to God that Rechab and, and Baana had not taken the action that they did. And they may very well have landed themselves in the, in the army of David. How sad. There's a lot to learn from them, but I'm trying to focus on David here tonight. And, and verse number one of chapter five tells us that all Israel came to identify with David. And they said, listen, we are of your bone and of your flesh. In other words, we're, we're connected in this. We're, we're uh, also all of Israel. We're from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and they said this about David. They said, David, you let us out and you brought us back. That's military success. A lot of generals can lead you out. You'd hope they bring you back. They said to David, David, you've already proven. You've already proven that God is with you and, and you've let them out and you brought them back. Okay, wait a minute. There's, there's, a, there's a contrast here between Baana and Rechab who were acting of their own interest. No, wait a minute. I'm not sure if everybody's getting it right here. They were not acting on the interest of Israel. They were not. They didn't kill Ishbosheth because they cared about Israel. They killed Ishbosheth because they cared about themselves. They were seeking their own best interest. They had themselves at heart. David is the leader of Israel, the leader of Judah at this point. He's going to be the leader and king of Israel, and he's got Israel's best interests at heart. Now, there were times in David's life when he had his own best interests at heart, no doubt about that. But there's also times and evidence that David let him out and he brought him in because he cared about God's name. And he cared about Israel and he had Israel at, at the, at his, at their, at, in his heart. And it, that was their best interest. He had their best. That's what I'm trying to say right there. He had their best interest at his heart, not his own. Not his own at best interest. And they said this, David, let's, let's keep reading here. And, and it says this, that, 
Uh, the Lord has said to thee, hey, how about this? He had a personal relationship with God. I'm talking tonight about how that you need to have other people's best interests at heart. And that comes from having a relationship with God. He said, God spoke to you, David, they said, and thou shalt feed my people. You shall feed my people. They knew that, David, you got a heart for us. You got a heart for us. You care about us. You, you want to be the shepherd. Here he was, the shepherd watching over sheep, but God has brought him out now to be the shepherd over Israel. You're going to be the shepherd over us. And, and I, I like what one man named Bergen, the last name Bergen said, shepherds are responsible for sheep, not sheep for the shepherd. How about that? The shepherd's supposed to care for the sheep. He's not supposed to make the sheep care and watch out for him. Saul, Saul wanted the people to take care of him instead of him taking care of them. Same thing there. But David had other people's best interest at heart. You shall feed the people. You'll be a captain over them, they say. Oh, how about this? Thou shalt feed. The Lord said to David, thou shalt feed, what's it say? My people. My people. And, and I think that would have been a great consolation to the people of Israel to know that they understood they didn't belong to Saul and they didn't belong to David, but that they were the Lord's people. They were the Lord's people. And he would lead them. David would lead them. And, and he had a spiritual start to this because he would be the shepherd of Israel. David became, basically this is it. David became the king of Israel over all Israel, not just over Judah, because first of all, we saw from chapter four, he trusted the Lord. Whereas Baana and Rechab were taking matters into their own hands. He trusted the Lord. He did, he did not want to benefit from those that would take it in an evil way. He trusted the Lord and he did this. He had their best interests at heart. Can I say to you tonight that those under your care need to know that you have their best interests at heart, that you trust the Lord and that you have their best interests at heart. Let me ask you this tonight. Does your spouse know that you have her best interests at heart, not just your own? I think most of us as men can be rather selfish. Is that right? Does your wife know that you have her best interests at heart? Uh, Dear wife, does your husband know you have his best interests at heart? Does your family know that you have their best interests at heart? Sometimes as a leader of a family, you're going to have to make some tough decisions, but you can do that if you've got their best interests at heart. Or do they feel like you're just doing that to serve yourself? How about at work? Do your coworkers think you're selfish or selfless? Well, they looked at David and said, you know, you're a selfless individual. You care about others. Do you care more about them or just using them, kind of stepping on them to get where you want to go? That's what, that's what Baana and Rechab were doing. They were stepping on others to get where they wanted to go. David said, I'm not going to go that route. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to trust the Lord right here and let him take me where he wants me to go. I'm not going to use others for my own means. That's what David was saying. How about right here at church? Are you known as a servant? Man, I love the kids singing just a moment ago. Give me, Lord, a servant's heart. That's it. 
But I think every one of us have to ask ourselves a question because we've considered enough from the life of Abner and the, and the life now of Ishbosheth and also now here these men that have come in. And, I, and I've got to ask all of us, do you serve in the ministry to help others or do you serve to help your own reputation? Do you care about your name or God's name? Um, they said to David, you'll be a shepherd to us. You'll care for us. Can I say to you tonight that the Lord's choice is better than the people's king? The Lord's choice is better than the people's king. Saul was the people's king. David was the Lord's choice. And uh, David knew that he could trust the Lord. I mean, just think about how patient David had to be right here. He had to wait on God, didn't he? From a teenager. He had to wait on God a long time. But you know, right here, I think David's better prepared than he ever had been. Sometimes it takes a while for God's will to work out in your life. But you can just wait on him and trust him. You don't have to get real hasty right here. And David now is a great warrior. He is also an experienced leader. He's right at the place that God can use him. And, and David knew this. David knew that he could trust the Lord. And I, I believe tonight that God wants for you what you would want for yourself if you and I were smart enough to want that. Be patient. In fact, uh, Warren Wiersbe said this, God takes time to prepare his leaders and much, much to be pitied is the person who succeeds before he or she is ready for it. God takes time. From the life of David here, I think we also see this. David didn't rely on sinful people to help advance in life. Don't use worldly methods to accomplish God's plans. To get into a relationship or to build a church, the end does not justify the means. I see this here as well when he says, uh, feed my people. I think we need to remember this church belongs to the Lord. I had that drilled firmly in me uh, from Brother Sam and I think uh, we try to pass that on. It's not my church. The class you teach is not your class. I think sometimes we say that without thinking about what we're saying. Yeah, my class. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. Oh, oh. Not your class. The class that God lets you be in. My bus route. No, it's not your bus route. It's a bus route you work on. I get nervous when a preacher says, my deacons. I just met with the deacons of Southwest Baptist Church. We just had a deacons meeting. Or they're not my deacons. They're the Lord's deacons. The Lord's servants. Thankful for that. I get real nervous when I hear a preacher or a pastor say, my preacher boys. That's cringe. <laughs> you with me? Number one... We don't need preacher boys. I cringe when I hear the term preacher boy. No, we need men of God, not preacher boys. I realize, I realize what people maybe are meaning by that, but wait a minute. There are men that God has called. I don't want to talk about a preacher boy. How about a man of God that's trying to preach the word? 
So I cringe there and then I cringe here when it's my preacher boys. That's like doubly cringe. <laughs> Afraid that sometimes we can get too interested in the fleece more than the flock. And we can use the ministry or people to serve us rather than us serving people. I told the class this week, I teach a pastoral class and I said, uh, you know, um, God's called a pastor to be an under shepherd. You know, we're a shepherd, shepherd in the sheep. We talked about how the one title for a, a pastor, well, since this is in the text tonight, that's the reason I'm using it right here. David, you'll be our pastor. You'll be our shepherd. Watching over us. I don't know a lot about sheep. Never been around sheep too much. Um, only time I was sharing with the class, only time I did this, we had a vacation Bible school and Brother Decker was there to, to uh, do the vacation Bible school and we had, it was called the shepherd and the sheep. So uh, we actually had a sheep that we brought on property at Meadowview Baptist Church and kept him outside and had somebody watch over him at night. But I had the distinct privilege of riding in the back of the pickup truck to pick up said sheep. <laughs> had a redneck that was a good faithful man of the church for the Ron Glenn and and he had a truck that the uh, gear shift was out of it. So he had a vice grip there that was working that truck. And you could see through the, it was quite a truck. We, <laughs> we went to pick up this sheep and somehow we loaded this sheep in the back of the truck. I'm hanging on, you know, it's got a rope around the sheep's neck and she's right there in my face and bah. It's about all I know about sheep. God gave this church an under shepherd and brother Sam Davison that was a shepherd to us as sheep. Cared about the sheep, fed the sheep, fed us well, didn't he? Cared about the sheep. I, I love to give people a tour of the, the uh, conference room and, and when I go in there, there's all the bookshelves there, the, the, the filing cabinets rather than there's four of them and they're all full of handwritten sermons. 10 and 12 pages long, half sheets, handwritten dating back to 1980-something, all the way back to Stillwater, where he fed the sheep there. And I pull out those, those filing cabinets. It's almost like, I, in my mind, like another scroll was open. And then another scroll. I mean, it's just like, wow. You know what I mean? But here's, here's what it was. Evidence that he fed the sheep right. and cared about the sheep. And he had our best interest at mind. That's it. You get here... 4.30 in the morning on a Sunday to go over his sermon and we get, get it down and work on it. It's feeding the sheep. That, that, what, I'm, what I'm saying to you is that, listen, if, if you're going to be who God wants you to be in the life of your family or in the life where you work or in the life of that Sunday school class or the life of that bus route, or you're going to be the man of God that you're supposed to be and not a preacher boy, and, and you're going to be owned by God, you're not owned by man. You're a man of God. You're a young person of God a young person of God. You're not owned by society. You're not trying to fit in with what the world says and using worldly means to get what you want. No, no. But you're saying, God, I'm going to trust you rather than myself here. And I'm just going to put my life in your hands. And God's delivered me when I was a teenager and he delivered me when I was a young person. And God's delivered me now as a young adult. Hey, God's the same God. He can still take care of you. And you don't need a rehab and a banana to do God's work. No, you can just trust God. Keep being God. 
and let God bring you to where he wants you to be and you just serve the people that God's given you to serve and serve your roommates and serve your spouse and serve your kids and serve that junior church class and serve those kids in Pee Wee and in Patch and serve those kids on the bus route and serve those teenagers up there in the youth department and, and let us not be serving ourselves. Let's serve him by serving others and then God establishes the kingdom. Are you following what I'm saying? God builds it. God gets the glory and people get helped by it because otherwise people lose their heads. A lot more damage is done by people who say, I'm going to use God to get what I want. David said, I'm not using God to get what I want. I want to let God use me to get what he wants. And that's having other people's best interests at heart. Is that clear? So whose interest do you have at heart? Your own or God's? It's really what a lot of this boils down to. And thus, if we have God's interest at heart, we want to serve like he serves, with a pure motive, not with ungodly means. I'm not at all interested in Bayana and Recab leading some kind of a worship band up here. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, but preacher, man, this church could be running 2,000 or more if we just kind of start using some worldly music. Not interested. Not at all interested. God doesn't need worldly music to do what he's doing. Yeah, you know, but if you just got a little bit of a different Bible that people could understand a little bit easier, you know, I'd rather just have a complete Bible that needs to be explained than one that's missing so much. Yeah, but uh, I don't think I have to keep going on. But it's kind of fun too. If you just get rid of that bus ministry. Man, uh, who wants, in their right mind, wants to get rid of of a ministry that's reaching so many. No, it's not time to pull back on bus ministry. It's time to move forward. There's still people that'll come if we just go out and reach them. Yeah, but you know, door knocking doesn't work anymore and people don't want you on their door. Well, I mean, they're lost. Sure, they don't want you on their door, but don't they need you there? And if you reach them and you talk to them and you share the gospel with them, can't the gospel do the work? There's two people saved, I believe it was, yesterday because somebody cared enough to go and work and talk talk to them at the door. Hey, listen, let's, let's not use worldly means to try to accomplish what God wants to do. Let's just keep using God's method with God's word and see God work in a great, mighty way. And let's not hire rehab and Bayana to do God's work. No, we're not employing them. Thank God we don't have any of them employed. You have to cut them loose. String them up on a pole. No, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't go that far. Sorry, that's too much, too far. But we need to make it very clear have it deep in our hearts and minds. We don't need the world's help to do God's work. We just need to get under God's authority and let Him work. Let's stand together tonight. Thank you for listening.
You know, over and over, I think we've just seen the same thing. Either I'm going to take this thing into my hands and do what I can with it, or, or I'm going to trust God here. I see that really it's just, it's just a David approach or a Joab approach. And then sometimes David acted like a Joab. But thank God David didn't stay like a Joab or an Abner or others like that. Now, I think every one of us would attest and, and confess that, yes, I have had some Joab moments. I'm not proud of that. I've had some Saul moments. I've had some Mishbosheth moments. I've had some moments like all the above. The, the, the key to the Christian life is don't stay there. Don't, don't stay in that mode of operation. Operate like David did when he was in his right mind. Father, help us tonight. There sure is a lot of ways we can get off track. Some of it's with our motives, some of it with our means. Our justification of wrong action. God, I believe this text and others demonstrate that, it, that the end doesn't justify the means. So God, would you help us to process what that looks like in our day and time? Thank you for David who just stood solid. They didn't back down. They didn't buy into their ploy. Saw right through it. Had his mind already made up that he wasn't going to go that route. Made a clear separation from it. So God, help us to have the same mindset, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.